On behalf of Weinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today is Attorney Todd Enkatavich from Withers Bergman LLP. Welcome, Todd. Thanks very much, Bob. Todd, today we're going to talk about 2701, and 2701 is getting a lot of attention most recently, probably because of the rumored 2704 changes to the regulations. It seems that practitioners are starting to talk about Chapter 14 issues more frequently, considered when you look at all the estate planning structures and entities, although its provisions still remain somewhat of a mystery to most practitioners, what is Chapter 14 designed to do? Uh, well, well, thanks, Bob. Chapter 14 of the code, uh, you know, it consists of sections 2701, 2702, 2703, and 2704, and there are a lot of provisions packed into Chapter 14 um, that uh, are broadly designed to attack different types of perceived abuses in connection with various different um, family uh, transactions. Um, Chapter 14 came in uh, to law in October of 1990, so it's been around for quite some time, yet a lot of the provisions still remain uh, you know, somewhat unknown or not very well understood by a lot of practitioners. But very broadly, Chapter 14 uh, contains a number of different uh, transfer tax provisions. Some of them are estate and gift tax provisions. Some are uh, only gift tax provisions, and they can apply to a number of different transactions, uh, including family limited partnerships, sales to grantor trusts, uh, preferred partnerships. Uh, it forms the statutory basis for GRATs and QPERTs. Uh, it can impact uh, buy-sell arrangements. So there are uh, a number of ways where you know, the provisions of Chapter 14 can broadly uh, apply to different transactions. And this is something that's very important to be mindful of when you're doing uh, estate planning transactions. And perhaps more importantly, a lot of these provisions can creep up unexpectedly. There's no intent provision with respect to these provisions. So sometimes you could have a transaction involving family members uh, that's maybe being done by, let's say, partners that are not um, uh, uh, involved on the trust and estate side of things, and they could trigger one of these provisions without even knowing it. So what is the mechanism that Chapter 14 uses to prevent these abuses? Well, Chapter 14 um, attacks different types of abuses from a number of different angles. But I'd say very broadly, uh, there, there appears to be sort of an underlying presumption with all of Chapter 14 that whenever junior and senior family members are getting together uh, to uh, consummate a transaction, there's a presumption or there appears to be a presumption that they're working in concert to basically minimize value for transfer tax purposes so as to transfer value to the next generation uh, uh, with a, you know, either at a discounted uh, value or some sort of reduced value. Interestingly, that is not always the case. Uh, and it's, it's very often the case that you're doing planning and senior generational family members want to maintain you know, a fair amount of assets uh, and cash flow from that. Uh, but there is this broad presumption uh, across the board, it appears, uh, that they're going to be working in concert to shift assets out at the lowest value possible. Now, how does Chapter 14 do this? And we're going to be talking about 2701 a little bit more specifically in a bit. And 2701 is one of the provisions of Chapter 14 that I mentioned before. 
But very broadly speaking, Chapter 14 um, takes uh, two broad types of approaches to attacking different transactions. And I'll speak about those very, uh, very generally here. But the two broad approaches appears to be what we'll call the deemed gift provisions. And then there are other types of um, approaches that we'll call the disregard provisions. The deemed gift provisions are generally found in Section 2701, which is only uh, a deemed gift provision. Um, Section 2702, which is another type of deemed gift provision that, uh, that forms a statu statutory basis for GRATS and for QPERTS. Both Section 2701 and 2702 um, apply a deemed gift concept with respect to uh, or by application of a zero valuation kind of concept, so as to say the retained interest by the parent, uh, uh, either with respect to transfers and trusts in the case of, a, of, of 2702, or with respect to certain types of um, uh, two-class entities in the case of Section 2701, it applies a zero valuation concept to a so as to say that the parent's retained interest is worth zero, and therefore the interest that is passed on to the next generation, for instance, is going to have a higher value than you might typically think. The other type of deemed gift provision is under Section 2704A, which is a lapsing provision. That says basically when you have a lapse of a liquidation right or a lapse of a voting right, you are going to have either a deemed gift uh, or or for Section 2704A, it's also an estate tax provision, so you could basically have an in increase in value for estate tax purposes. The other broad type of approach under Chapter 14 are the disregard provisions, and those are generally found either under Section 2703, which is both a gift tax and an estate tax provision, and it essentially works to ignore certain provisions that might otherwise impact value for transfer tax purposes, and you might see that in the context of a buy-sell agreement. Uh, or more recently, you've, we've seen a number of cases that address that in the context of an FLP, for instance. Um, and then there's also Section 2704B, which broadly uh, applies to ignore certain restrictions on the liquidation uh, of an entity that might, o might otherwise impact value. And that's where we're seeing some discussion now with respect to these anticipated new regulations from the IRS. Um, but very broadly, Chapter 14 attacks different types of family transactions from different angles. There's a lot of detail to this, uh, but that's very broadly how you might conceptualize Chapter 14. You mentioned Section 2701 as being part of Chapter 14. What does 2701 specifically do, and what types of transactions are going to be governed by 2701? Well, it's interesting. As you said before, Bob, Section 2701, which is a deemed gift provision, has been starting to get more attention over the past several years, and, and particularly now with the discussions with respect to uh, the anticipated 2704B regs, uh, I, I suppose 2701 is getting a little bit more attention as well. It is uh, a provision that's, like I said before, it's been around for over 20 years, but it's still not very well understood by a lot of people. It's a potentially thorny provision that can apply uh, basically in connection with the creation of entities uh, where you have different uh, economic interests. Um, it can also apply in connection with transfers of different interests when you're retaining a different type of entity interest. It can also apply with respect to recapitalizations or changes in capital structure. But basically, the thought behind 2701 
was that what Congress was trying to do, they were trying to prevent the perceived abuse with pre-1990 preferred partnerships. Uh, and while you can do preferred partnerships today that are 2701 compliant, they are much narrower in their application now, although there is a fair amount of benefits still that, uh, that can be obtained from these. But basically the pre-1990 preferred partnership uh, was the sort of discretionary preferred partnership that, that Congress is trying to attack. And the discretionary nature of these preferred partnerships were really the things that were, that were perceived to be as abusive. Um, and generally what was happening at the time was that maybe you would have parent would create a preferred partnership pre-1990 and it would be capitalized with preferred interest that, that had a, a, a coupon payment, let's say 6 or 7%, for instance, that would be paid on the preferred plus, plus the preferred enjoyed a liquidation preference. And then there was a second economic class, which was your common growth interest. And uh, parent would um, structure the preferred partnership so that the preferred interest had all sorts of discretionary rights, such as the right to receive annual coupon payments, um, but if they weren't paid, uh, they would uh, not be paid in the future, perhaps. Um, also, things like rights to liquidate, um, puts and calls, those discretionary rights were maintained with that preferred interest. And for valuation purposes, parents would make a gift of the common interest, and they would say, well, my preferred interest has all these discretionary rights attached to it, and, and those uh, those discretionary rights add value. And because they have value, that must make the value of the common interest that I've gifted much lower. So parent would make a gift of that common interest, let's say to the children or perhaps a multi-generational trust for the benefit of that child. Uh, and for valuation purposes, they would say that common interest is worth a lot less because most of the value has been retained by the parent with this preferred interest that has all these discretionary rights attached to it. And then lo and behold, after the gift, if those discretionary rights were never exercised, then the value would shift over or it would inure to the benefit of the common interest holders, uh, which at that time would be the children. And what you ended up having was a potential for a gift tax-free shift, uh, perhaps of significant value. So 2701 uh, was uh, put into place uh, effective uh, for, trans for transfers after October 8th of 1990 that basically applied a deemed gift um, consequence in the case of certain transfers uh, of, these, of these different types of interest. Now, there are a number of different ways that you can trigger a gift under 2701, but basically 2701 now uh, can result in a deemed gift in the, in the event of a transfer. And a transfer is very broadly defined under 2701. A transfer of means, of course, a traditional transfer, I make a transfer by way of gift to my child of certain equity interests, but it can also include a recapitalization. It can also include an initial capital contribution uh, and other changes of capital structure. So it's quite possible uh, that you could walk into 2701 unexpectedly with no intention whatsoever or any intention or desire to make any kind of uh, deemed gift uh, or without any kind of gifting intention, and you could nonetheless trigger uh, a potential gift under 2701. Sometimes we hear the phrase vertical slice. 
Um, many times that's mentioned in the context of planning with carried interest and funds. Uh, what is the vertical slice rule, and is it actually a provision in the regulations? Yep, so the, the vertical slice, sometimes referred to as the ver vertical slice rule, uh, and, I, and I'll put rule in quotes here, is something that's, it's almost become a rule unto itself. And for those practitioners uh, who do estate planning transactions for principles of hedge funds or private equity funds, uh, you rarely uh, have a discussion about carried interest transfer planning without the phrase vertical slice being uttered. And, and essentially, the vertical slice exception or the vertical slice approach, it's, it's arguably the most elegant and straightforward approach to doing a transfer of uh, carried interest in a fund. Um, but it has its natural limitations, too, which I'll talk about in a minute. But essentially, what the vertical slice is, it's based off of one of the several exceptions under 2701 that basically says that to the extent that you have a proportional reduction of, let's say, the senior family member's interest uh, in, um, in an entity, uh, then that proportional reduction of interest is not going to be uh, something that's going to trigger the deemed gift rules under Section 2701. And the notion being that, well, before I was talking about the the um, you know the potential for shifting of value or manipulation of value between common and preferred interests, well, the notion with this vertical slice exception is that, well, if I have 10% preferred and 10% common, and I give half of each of my 10% interests away, uh, then that's going to be a reduction across the board, so that any kind of potential for shifting value between the two classes is not going to impact uh, unfairly the value between the senior generational family member and the junior generational family member. And that's essentially the nature of the vertical slice. Now, how does this apply in the context of, you know, the fund planning that we often uh, get engaged in? Well, when we're doing uh, transfers of carried interest in funds, typically, uh, or often you are going to have a structure where the, let's say, the fund principal has uh, an ownership interest in the general partner of the fund, and that general partner has a has a special profits allocation. Typically, 20% is is something that we often see, um, but a lot of times they also have uh, interests uh, as a limited partner in in the the fund itself, and a lot of times that's required as part of the economic deal. So while the rules of 2701 were never intended at all to be applicable with respect to transfers of fund interests. Um, because of the, the very broad application of 2701, um, you could nonetheless trigger uh, this deemed gift tax rule by making a transfer of one economic interest and, out, and not the other. So in the context of transfers of fund interests, the vertical slice would uh, be applied uh, and the way it would be applied would be to say, okay, well, I want to give away, let's say, 10% of my interest in the general partner that has the carried interest. If I have limited partner interests also in that fund, a vertical slice would have required me to give, let's say, an equal percentage reduction of both my interest in the general partner and the limited partner. There's a lot more to that, obviously, and there's a lot more to the 2701 discussion than we're covering here, but these are sort of the highlights. Todd, what are the types of retained interests that may trigger the zero valuation rule under Section 2701? So the way 2701 works, and, and again, the policy rationale 
it was it was to try to prevent the situation where parent held on to a preferred interest that had all these discretionary rights, uh, and those discretionary rights would basically beef up the value of the parent's retained preferred interest. And so when they gave away the common interest down to the next generation, for instance, they could say the common interest was worth a lot less. And then later on, after the transfer was made, um, if the parents never ended up exercising those discretionary rights, you would have this um, uh, gift tax-free shift of uh, potentially significant appreciation. So 2701 basically put a stop to that uh, by the application of this zero valuation rule. Um, and it does it basically by saying, look, in this preferred partnership context, for instance, if parent holds on to that preferred interest, okay, we are going to value it or, or a significant part of it at zero for purposes of gift tax valuation under this subtraction method of valuation. And the consequence of that would be that, well, what you used to do uh, where you made the gift of the common, and the common had a much lower value for these purposes, um, that common could now not be artificially deflated um, by, by way of retaining these discretionary rights. The way that 2701 does that is, is it says that there are two different types of rights um, that will cause uh, the application of the zero valuation rule. The more typical one is called the distribution right. And a distribution right is basically a right to uh, receive distributions with, the res with respect to an equity interest in a controlled company. Um, and that right to receive distributions with respect to an equity interest, it will trigger the zero, value, that zero valuation rule unless what parent retains is either the same class or a subordinate interest. So that if the parent holds on to the common interest and gives away the preferred interest, that is not going to trigger 2701. That's sort of referred to as a reverse freeze. If the parent gives away one class and holds on to the same class, that also is not going to trigger 2701. But when you have the situation where the parent gives away the common and they hold on to the preferred, which is the senior interest for these purposes, you potentially trigger 2701, uh, which would result in that distribution right being valued at zero right, for these purposes under the subtraction method. The other type of right, um, a different type of applicable retained interest that can be valued at zero under Section 2701 is an extraordinary payment right. And those are discretionary rights, such as puts or calls, rights the exercise or non-exercise of which will impact uh, value for transfer tax purposes. Now, there are different ways that you can structure around 2701, and there are a lot of nuances to 2701 uh, that you, you need to kind of go through when you're doing this analysis. But that's the broad picture. And again, the rationale behind that is to say, well, look, if this was just a discretionary right that parent held on to, if we can't determine for certain uh, that parent is going to have to receive something and determine the value of it, then we're going to value uh, those retain discretionary rights at zero. Now, there are certain rights that are necessarily going to be given value uh, under 2701 um, uh, that might otherwise be associated with a preferred interest, such as a liquidation participation right. And my friend Richard Dees makes a point to, to, to point this out that, you know, sometimes that the consequences of 2701 application may not be as bad as a lot of us often think. Uh, because a liquidation participation right is still going to be given 
value, and it's not going to be subject to the 27010 valuation rules. So um, now that is something that would have to be subject to valuation still, but nonetheless, there is still some value there with the liquida uh, liquidation participation right component of the retained equity interest. So a more recent development with respect to Section 2701 uh, came out last year with Chief Counsel Advice 20144053. And in that uh, CCA, that involved a situation where there was a recapitalization of an LLC. Initially, the mother had created an LLC funded with uh, real estate. And uh, at the time, it was a single class uh, LLC, so all the interests were of the same class. And she had uh, made gifts of LLC interest to her sons uh, and some grandchildren uh, in the first instance. Sometime thereafter, uh, the LLC was recapitalized. And as a consequence of the recapitalization, uh, the sons received uh, interests uh, that were allocated all the profits and losses going forward. And the mother and the grandchildren uh, had interests that were locked in basically to their uh, capital account. Um, so that this was, as a result of this recapitalization, the LLC was broken into two different economic classes. Well, the IRS concluded that this recapitalization was indeed a transfer um, for purposes of Section 2701. I had mentioned before that that transfers under Section 2701 include not only traditional transfers, but also recapitalizations, capital contributions, changes in capital structure. So this was certainly one that fell within that definition of a transfer. And the IRS determined uh, that the uh, interests that the sons had received were subordinate interests and that the parent's interest or the mother's interest that she retained uh, was subject to zero valuation under Section 2701 because it was not a qualified payment right. Um, now, this has been uh, the subject of some criticism, um, and uh, Richard, Richard Dees has written a very good critical paper on this called Is Chief Counsel Resurrecting the Chapter 14 Monster in Tax Notes uh, last December, uh, which is a very good read. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it's important to know that this uh, uh, rule or this uh, CCA came out. Uh, it applied in a non-traditional sense in that it, it applied with respect to a recapitalization as opposed to a traditional kind of gift. So it's something to be mindful of. So Todd, are there still planning opportunities available with 2701? Yes, th there certainly are, Bob. Um, so what I mentioned before, when 2701 became law, the application of the, the zero valuation rule with, with distribution rights and extraordinary payment rights, those apply really with respect or it was intended to apply really with respect to those discretionary rights. And, you know, the, the discretionary nature of the, the rights pre-1990 uh, were the things that were considered to be abusive. However, built into the statute is, is, is essentially an acknowledgement that, well, if parent takes back something which is a preferred interest, and we can know for sure that they are going to have to mandatorily receive some, some return and we can quantify it, then it makes sense from a policy perspective that that parent should still be given some credit under the subtraction math, method of valuation uh, for that retained interest. So you can still create 2701 compliant preferred partnerships now, and the, the most typical way that you would do that is through structuring your preferred interest as a qualified payment right. Um, 
there are other ways to structure that uh, so that you could structure the preferred interest as, uh, uh, as a mandatory payment right. You could structure it as a guaranteed payment. But the qualified payment right is probably the most uh, typical way that you would do it. And a qualified payment right is basically a right that is uh, a cumulative payment payable at least annually at a fixed rate or at a rate bearing a fixed relationship to a specified market interest rate. So the way you would do a 2701 compliant preferred partnership or, per, or preferred LLC uh, today would be to structure that preferred payment, let's say that goes back to the parent, most likely as a qualified payment right. But again, the, the, the notion is that you know, there's an acknowledgement in the statute that if what parent is taken back is mandatory and quantifiable, then it makes sense from a policy from a policy perspective that they should be given value for these because they are indeed taking those interests back and indeed have to take those interests back. Now, Todd, this is kind of academic today, August 25th, 2015, because we can still do IGIT sales and grants. And I think many people would agree 70, 80% of the time, those are more desirable transactions. But let's fast forward. Let's assume that some of the things on the president's wish list come true. Um, no more discounts, um, no more grats, no more idgets. This would become the planning technique of choice. And that's why I think it's so important for planners to understand this. So in the, walk me through in a minute or so if I had somebody with $10 million worth of real estate, how would we structure that? How much would be preferred? How much would be common? If we had a good coverage ratio, what would be the, the preferred dividend rate? And what are we looking for in terms of economics? Sure. Let me just comment a little bit on those couple techniques, and then I'll go into sort of the, the hypothetical that, that you've thrown out. I mean, certainly these, you know, that statutory 2701 compliant preferred partnership vehicles are things that uh, they, they have some real potential advantages to them. Um, but they are things that when you look at, at the, the other techniques that are on the table now, um, they all have relative pros and cons. And, you know, like you mentioned, the, the, the GRAT, which is a great technique, you know, to make a gift tax-free transfer of appreciation at this point, who knows how much longer that's going to be in place for, right? There are, there are proposals that have been around for a while to have a 10-year minimum uh, term and, uh, you know, and the proposal to, to maybe have a 25% uh, minimum gift. So the idea of a zeroed-out grad and rolling grads, who knows how much longer those have. Um, the sale to the defective grantor trust is a great, great technique, and it's a great uh, uh, way to shift future appreciation at a low AFR and do it in a way where you can make that sale to a trust that's a, that's generation skipping tax exempt so that you can make it multi-generational, let's say unlike the GRAT where you have the natural ETIP limitation. Um, in, interestingly, uh, uh, we did do a white paper a few years ago um, uh, called the Preferred Partnership GRAT as a way to possibly structure around the uh, limitations, the GST exempt uh, ETIP limitations with a GRAT. And it's basically by combining two statutory vehicles, the statutorily uh, mandated GRAT under Section 2702 and the statutorily created uh, preferred partnership, which is compliant under Section 2701. And you can basically put those together and fund your GRAT with the preferred interest 
uh, in a preferred partnership and have the common interest, uh, which has the growth potential, owned from day one by a GST exempt trust. So it could provide a nice way to actually shift appreciation uh, in a GST exempt manner from day one using a preferred partnership vehicle while getting the benefit of the grad. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, who knows uh, where these things are going. There have been, you know, more attacks of late with uh, the sale to the grantor trust, as as we know about from this, this well-being case that, that is out there right now and some of the arguments that have been levied under Section 2702 uh, with respect to the sale to the grantor trust basically where the IRS has, 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 has made the argument that, that the note that's been taken back by the parent uh, in connection with the sale to the trust transaction is essentially a disguised transfer in trust that fails the requirements under Section 2702 and therefore is subject to zero valuation. Now, yes, if those, if those techniques eventually fall away and valuation discounts, uh, who knows what's going to happen with that with these potential or with these anticipated 2704 regs, um, yes, I think that will put uh, preferred partnerships more into the forefront. If you are going to create a preferred partnership, there is a lot of complexity to it. The one thing you, you had mentioned, the adequacy of the coupon, and that's a very important distinction because even if you do a preferred partnership that is 2701 compliant, so let's say that you structure it so that the preferred interest is a qualified payment right, so that you don't trigger the zero valuation rule under 2701. That, however, doesn't mean that all gift tax issues are off the table. And what I mean by that, Bob, is that you still have to ensure that your preferred coupon is uh, providing an adequate coupon to the preferred interest holder, let's say the parent. So for instance, if, if the correct coupon is determined to need to be 7.5%, for instance, and your preferred partnership agreement, even though it's structured as a qualified payment right, it provides for only a 5% preferred coupon to the preferred holder, you still have some deemed gift component to the extent of the, the shortfall between the 7.5% and the 5%. Now, granted, that's not nearly as bad a consequence as triggering 2701, um, where you have the zero valuation rule applied, but nonetheless, you still have traditional gift tax um, valuation issues uh, that you need to contend with. Now, the sort of the, the cocktail uh, or the ingredients for the cocktail uh, for determining the adequacy of the coupon generally have their origin in Revenue Ruling 83-120, uh, which uh, predates um, Chapter 14 and predates Section 2701. But in there, it, it lists the number of different factors that the IRS considers to be important uh, factors to consider when you're determining the adequacy of the coupon. And all these, Bob, essentially go to risk because they'll look at, for instance, the starting point and say, okay, well, if you could invest your money uh, in, in to a publicly, into a high-grade publicly preferred uh, stock, what would that be paying? And that's sort of the natural starting point in the analysis. And then you have to adjust that for risk, okay, because here you're going to be investing in a private vehicle. And you know, how safe is that investment going to be? Now, the idea of coverage really kind of comes into, into uh, play here when you're doing this analysis. Coverage of the coupon, meaning what is the strength, what is the ability of this preferred partnership to actually meet the coupon payments, how much risk is associated with that? 
dissolution protection. What is the ability and the likelihood that the entity is going to be able to satisfy its liquidation preference at the end of the term uh, for the preferred payments? So it really comes down to a risk analysis. The coupon can really be impacted pretty dramatically by, by the coverage uh, and, and the ratio, let's say, of preferred versus common. So let's say, for instance, that you had one preferred partnership that was capitalized with 80% preferred and 20% common, okay, versus another partnership that's capitalized with 50% preferred and 50% common. Well, the first partnership that has 80% preferred, it's going to be a much riskier investment for that preferred interest holder because there's a lot less common that can be used to support that big preferred payment. The payments can be based, you know, off of 80% of the capitalization as opposed to the 50-50 where it's only paying a preferred coupon on 50% of the capitalization, but you have 50% common to, to support it. So there are a number of factors that go into the adequacy of the coupon. Todd, I certainly want to thank you for all the insight you brought to our listeners. Can you do a little wrap-up for us just to kind of summarize the important takeaway points from today's discussion? Yes. Well, thanks very much for having me, Bob. This is a lot of um, material material to try to pack into a 15-minute discussion, and there are a lot of nuances and thorns here. What I tried to do today was kind of um, give a big-picture overview of, of, of the issues, the different approaches under Chapter 14, and then a little bit more specifically some of the uh, big-picture considerations under Section 2701 and, and basically some of the, the mechanics of, of how it operates. What I will say is any Section 2701 analysis gets very, very uh, technical and gets very uh, in the weeds quickly. And it, it's something you don't want to dabble in. You really need to know the rules if you're going to do an analysis. Um, and there's a lot more detail to this. So I think there are some great materials out there. If you're doing this analysis, you really need to parse through these. So for instance, there are these very thorny attribution rules that you need to take a look at when you're doing an analysis, uh, particularly when you're doing uh, 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 transactions involving trusts and entities and things like that, because the analysis can turn on a dime very quickly. Um, but I think, you know, just from a big picture red flags perspective, you know, whenever you are entering into some sort of family transaction, whether it's a gift transfer or a sale or a recapitalization or a change in capital structure or an initial capital contribution, when you have family members involved and if you see different economic classes of interest, that's where your 2701 red flag should go up because there are a lot of uh, ways that, that it can creep up uh, unexpectedly. And, it, and it, as I mentioned before, there's no intent uh, requirement whatsoever. So you can walk into something and not even know it. Um, and this is particularly important, I think, for, for those uh, trust and estates practitioners that sometimes get called in to opine uh, or to review certain transactions that might be done in the different departments. Um, so you might see this, let's say, in a real estate transaction, for instance. But just be mindful that whenever you see different economic classes and family members involved, that your antenna should go up. But on the other hand, there are a lot of planning opportunities uh, that, that you can uh, consider with respect to preferred partnerships and other types of 2701 compliant entities. So there's uh, there's both uh, you know, there's both uh, advantages and risks uh, that you need to keep in mind. Todd, this has been outstanding. I think our listeners have learned a lot today. 
Todd, on behalf of Weinberg Information Services, thank you for being with us today. This has been Bob Keebler with Todd Inkatavich from Withers Bergman LLP.